And uh, one of the very first reasons is that the, exactly the, as the Kabbalistic mysticism is related to the use of the Hebrew language in the Hebrew environment, exactly like this, the use of Sanskrit has been connected with metaphysics, occultism, and the subtle realities, spiritual realities in the spiritual environment of India, in the tantric and yogic environment of India. I'm going to draw those analogies uh, quite a bit further uh, in this speech. I'm going to show you where the analogies are. And um, one of the things which is there is that the phonemes of the Sanskrit alphabet are inevitably related to mantras. They are inevitably related, the mantras are inevitably related to the principles of reality, which we call tattvas. And the study of the tattvas, mantras, phonemes, and other such aspects, they are all based on the principle of correspondence. In the tantric tradition, it was a, a great scholar who said it very nicely that uh, the tantric tradition is a tradition of correspondences, correlations, homologations, all of them quite difficult words to explain what they mean, but correspondences is for sure one of the very important words. Like everything corresponds to something numerologically, anatomically, geographically, in terms of colors, in terms of sounds. No, like it's not a coincidence that we have an octave in music and the octave is actually made of seven tones. No, because the next tone, the eighth tone, it becomes the first tone of the next octave, exactly as we have seven chakras, exactly as we have seven dominant planets, seven visible planets, in our um, astronomical and astrological symbol, and the list could go on forever and ever. Everything corresponds, 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 corresponds. Those of you who studied Kashmiri Shaivism, you know, even the intro workshop which we do here in Agama, you know that you, you remember that Kashmiri Shaivism makes everything correspond in triads, 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 always looking to illustrate things as they come in threes, as they come in groups of threes. In a similar way, spirituality in general illustrates everything as coming in groups of seven, 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 seven. So in this way, in Tantra, in the Tantric way of thinking, which, uh, again, I said, it exists in Kabbalah, it exists in Hermeticism, it exists in some aspects of the Taoist, uh, Chinese mysticism. So it's not only in Tantra, but there is always this quest, this infinite quest for correspondences, because the correspondences, they clarify some things. Like, why are there 12 spokes in Anahata Chakra? And why are there 12 astrological signs in astrology? And why are there that Jesus chose to have 12 apostles to spread his teaching? You know, what's the correspondence? No, like, can you make a correspondence between the 12 apostles and the 12 astrological signs? 
No, is it legitimate? No, that one of them was called Thomas, nicknamed also the famous Thomas, also nicknamed Didymus, which means the twin. You know, so does this point at something? You know, when you read the Gospel of Thomas, from which is a Gnostic Gospel, are you reading something written by a twin? And actually, Jesus may have chosen them to be one of each astrological sign, and so on. And then, you know, then Peter, who was the sort of informal leader of the apostles of Christ, was he a Leo or an Arius, one of these astrological signs which like to be in charge and to lead and who have strong Manipura? Or like, you know, how far can we push these things? So there are always correspondences. Now Manipura chakra is the chakra of science and technology, the science of the objective spirit, as we call it in Kashmiri Shaivism. And Manipura chakra is characterized by the number 10. And we have 10 fingers on our hands. And we are counting in a system of numeration, which is 10. In the old days, many people in Western Europe, they were counting in 12s. Things were dozens. We spoke in dozens. No, and even the financial system of the British, the pences and pennies and so on, there were 12 in a unit, not 10. And then everything was slowly, slowly going to the numeral system of 10. No, which, but for example, computers, which are going into the direction of artificial intelligence, they have a numeration system of 16. It's a hexadecimal code which works in processors and therefore in computers. Microprocessors, they don't count by 10, they count by 16. No, and 16 is the number of spokes of Vishuddha Chakra. Is this another coincidence that the pure intelligence from the artificial intelligence and some of these things from the computer type of intelligence would be related with the number 16 and all that? I'm trying to show to you that actually when you think numerologically, astrologically, anatomically, in terms of colors, in terms of the sounds of the scale of the music, there are always correspondences. There are always correspondences. And Tantra is a science of correspondences. And that's why for the Tantric people, one of the main sources of correspondences was the alphabet and the language. Because this one was one of the abstract things. Like, you know, until Manomaya Kosha, we go to emotions and concrete thinking. But as soon as we move to Vigyana Mayakosha, we go to philosophy, concepts, and things which are not emotionally involved, things which are just ideas. No? And the alphabet goes on such ideas. Because if you want to write in English the word chair, and then you want to write C-H-A-I-R, you know, chair, to go for the five letters, phonemes or glyphs, of the word chair, you know, then the letters are absolutely abstract because each letter in itself doesn't mean a thing and you are not emotionally related to it in any way. Nobody says, I love C more than I love A. You know, only if you are pathological or if you are having some sort of... But otherwise, you know, these are abstract things which contain no emotional value and still they are part of correspondences. And thus, to not keep this story too long, to, to keep it short actually, uh, the yogis have entered a lot in this world of correspondences 
and their basis has always been the Sanskrit alphabet. If you analyze the Hebrew alphabet, there, for example, there are 21 letters plus one added later. There is always like in the playing cards, you are having the 52 playing cards of a deck of cards, and then you have one or two or three extras, which are called the jokers. And in some, in some games, you play with the jokers. In some games, you play not with the jokers. Like nobody uses jokers, as far as I remember, when you play bridge. You know, in the game of bridge, the jokers are not intervening. They don't have any value. But there are other games where you play with jokers, you know. So there is a number of them, plus sometimes some extra cards. The same is in the Kabbalistic use of the Hebrew alphabet, where there are 21 letters, but 21, anybody who is a little bit of application in mathematics thinks first, you know, what's 21? Then 21 is 3 times 7. You know, these are the most sacred numbers in the early numbers, in the small numbers. In the, when you go to the digits from 1 to 10, 3 and 7 are the most sacred of those numbers, perhaps joined only by the 1. You know, and you have 3 times 7 plus 1. You know, and then you've got the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And those 21 letters, you are going to think, okay, 7 chakras, 7 planes, and then 3 aspects on each, Rajas, Tamas, Sattva, or whatever. Then you are thinking about it when you study Tarot, where they have the, 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 the symbols uh, associated with these 21 letters, then you have 12 of them are the astrological signs. Seven of them are the seven ruling planets. So you have 12 plus 7, it's 19. How much do you need to make the, the 21 and the 22? Two or three. If you choose two, it's yin and yang. It's the left pillar and the right pillar of the tree of life. And if you choose three, it's yin, yang, and the one which is on top of the triangle, which has no gender, the neutral, the zero. That's why... Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is related with something very precise in metaphysics. And then they have been given numerological values like Aleph, the first letter is equal to 1. And then uh, the second letter, Bet, is related to 2. And Gimel is related to 3 and so on. And then when you write a word, like whatever word you can choose to have in uh, Hebrew, then not only that you write the word, but you can calculate a numerical value for that word. So a word is also meaning number six. No, like the famous number Allah of the Muslim religion, when you move it in Hebrew alphabet and you calculate it numerologically, it has the value 66. No, and six plus six makes 12, and you are getting back to the 12 of Jesus and to the 12 tribes of Israel, and to the 12 astrological signs, and to the 12 spokes of Anahata Chakra, is like, are these coincidences? Never. They are never coincidences. The question is, are they simple synchronicities, or are they deliberate synchronicities? And in the case of the Hebrew alphabet, as well as in the case of Sanskrit, they are deliberate synchronicities. Like the people who did these things, you know, in the time at the time of, when Sanskrit became written down by Panini, about at the time of Buddha, about 
2,500 years ago, the, the first major grammar of Sanskrit written by a spiritual grammarian called Panini was written. That grammar is used, is still considered, I've just read an article on Wikipedia tonight, no, just warming up a little bit for this discussion, where the grammar of Panini and the study of Panini is considered still the best exegesis of Sanskrit until today. Like until today, nobody did better than Panini 25 centuries ago. So, uh, basically, the idea is that language has a very important thing. I, I'm going to speak about mantras and phonemes and this a bit later in this work, in this uh, discussion tonight, but uh, much more about it in the in the workshop itself. Uh, but right now I'm starting with the basic concepts. The basic concept is that there is no consciousness without speech. The animals have language, but their language is not articulated language. Like the language contains signs, glyphs, phonemes, and in the moment when it is divided in component parts, like a puzzle game, like a Lego game, that it's made of component parts which can be assembled together, like the glyphs in the written language, and like the phonemes in the spoken language, in that moment that constitutes consciousness. Remember, the whales and the baboons and the orangutans and the whoever you want, they have languages. But those languages are not articulated languages. Like you can imitate a chimpanzee by making ooh, 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 but that, that's not phonemes. Those are not phonemes. You can imitate the sounds of a cow by making moo, but that's not a phoneme, and it does not represent a word or an idea which is being communicated. So, even the dolphins, who are intelligent animals and have a complex language, they do not have a phonemic, glyph-like, ideatic language, they communicate at the best some states of being, like I'm angry, I'm excited sexually, I'm this, I'm that. It's emotional languages, but they don't rise at the level of the ideas, of conceiving ideas. Researchers have managed to teach some ideatic language to a few animals in laboratory, like there are researchers who speak to gorillas by doing all sorts of signs, and a few other animals have learned very primitive, simple language, and it's exactly on the borderline where consciousness starts. So consciousness starts with language. Children don't remember memories before they were two years old. What's happening at two years old? You start speaking. You start getting the first words. As you start speaking, you start being conscious. Before that time, you can remember that there was a big pain when you are born, like Stanislav Grof is doing some, uh, you know, uh, psychotherapy with the four stages of birth and all that kind of thing and so on. And people feel a pressure, a stress, a frustration at this, but it's not ideas, it's not an ideatic thing, it's primitive things. Exactly as if you'd be an animal 
and you would feel pain or you'd be tied up and you'd feel that you are bound or something like this. It's not about communicating information or ideas. Therefore, uh, in India, for the yogis, because they were so interested in the structure of consciousness, like what is consciousness? Why do human beings have consciousness and all the animals don't have consciousness? At the best, some chimpanzees and some orangutans or even some elephants from time to time, they are having a sort of very primitive dawn of consciousness, also dolphins sometimes. So animals which are on the verge of having a big brain and because of their big brain having some sort of complicated structure of the brain and having some proto-language, some primitive language, some forerunner of the language. And thus, for the yogis, speech was very important. Then you have the Vedas, the Shastra. Shastras means that which was heard. The implication being that the Shastras are heard by the clairvoyant people, the yogis who developed clairaudience, clairvoyance, and other such things. They somehow downloaded the Shastras. So it's like it's not of a human origin. It's brought here. And thus, the idea is that we human beings have consciousness because we have language, and we have language because we have consciousness. And then, the structure of language becomes very, very important. Today, uh, NLP practitioners and others, they tell us that it's all about uh, syntax and formulation and language, and, uh, you know, and it's a lot of stuff there included into the teachings of these people, and they are right. The misuse of language can cause tragedies for ourselves and for others, you know, because it programs our consciousness in all the wrong directions. And therefore, there is no surprise that the yogis and the spiritualists of India have always been very interested in a purity of language, that the language should be used, and therefore there is a special language which is used in the Vedas, in the Upanishads, in this, and they try to keep this Sanskrit language as pure as possible. And they, they have so many rules of it, no? precisely because it's related somehow to consciousness. If we go down from Sanskrit and Hebrew, which are the best flagships of this divine language, then we are getting to the fact that other languages, they try to keep them pure. Like, for example, Latin, which was used by the Roman Empire, and then it was taken over by the Christian Church, and it became the lingua franca, it became the language of the scientists and of the cultivated people, even during the Renaissance. In the Renaissance in Europe, the only way to communicate between an Englishman and an Italian and a Spaniard and a Polish person was by Latin. Everybody who spoke Latin, those were the educated people, and they could speak the universal language in Europe. But Latin did not have this claim that it was a divine language. Like They realized that with Latin you can express the ideas of God. With Latin you can express 
science, knowledge, purity, and they tried to be very puritanic about it until the 1960s when uh, these hippie revolutions destroyed everything and they turned everything into just, um, um, you know, like indiscipline and uh, all the things which came with it in the name of a certain longing for freedom. And um, basically, what I'm saying here is this. The yogis discovered through their own meditation and through their own experience that consciousness is related to language. If the language is pure, the consciousness is pure. If the language is clear, the consciousness is clear. And that, therefore, a language which is archetypal corresponds immediately to the highest truths. In this way, the people who created Sanskrit, the people who downloaded Sanskrit, they tried to make it archetypal. And they had a little more time than the Kabbalists had in their time, and they, they put more energy into it. So while the Kabbalists made the language simple, with 21 plus 1 characters, 3 times 7 plus 1, the Sanskritologists, they made it more complicated by going to 49 characters, like going, desiccating, dividing the reality more into details. 49 letters plus one as well. That plus one stays. And uh, 49 being nothing else but seven times seven. So instead of having three times seven, you're having seven times seven, and then plus one. Many, many things from Hebrew to Sanskrit are comparable. I have seen studies in which they were studying the essential vowels, which start an alphabet, and both in Sanskrit and in Hebrew and in the Western languages, because most of the Western languages are Indo-European languages, and they are derivated one way or another from Sanskrit. That's why they are called Indo-European languages. But, uh, for example, Hebrew is not an Indo-European language, it's a Semitic language, so it's from another group. And still in both groups, the first, the vowels which generate all the vowels, and therefore all the language, you can say, are A, E, U, the Three ones, which are the first groups of two of the Sanskrit, a a e e u u. These are exactly the same ones. Even if you in Hebrew you'd pronounce them like yod and whatever and alif or whatever, um, it, it's the same principle uh, respected there. So I'm um, telling you all these things to understand that the conclusion of the fact that language is a reflection of consciousness. And if you want to reflect a perfect consciousness, you should have an as perfect as possible language and as archetypal as possible. This came to some people. Again, even Latin did not reach this perfection. Latin was, after all, a vulgar language from this. It was not an esoteric language. Even the Greeks, who were very cultural and created, they are at the bottom of the European history. They started a lot of things. The Greek civilization started or brought a lot of things in the European culture 
even the Greek language with its 24 or 25 characters, it's not made on numerological principles and it's not the same. There are still some universal things. For example, in pretty much every language of the world, definitely in Hebrew, in Sanskrit, in Greek, in Latin, in English, in Romanian, and in any other language which derives from these Indo-European languages and Semitic. In Arabic, it's the same and so on. The first letter of the alphabet is always A. A. Everything's the last letter is not always Z. For example, in Greek, it's from alpha to omega. First letter is alpha, the last letter is omega. But, and in English, it's from A to Z. No? And again, in, in Sanskrit, it's from A to Ha, the alphabet, you know. And thus, the last is not the same. They lost the contact somewhere along the way, but always all the languages start with A. And thus, um, it's very meaningful. And for this reason, the letter A is always put in touch with Shiva, with the Shiva consciousness, is the letter of Shiva, is the one which represents the Supreme Consciousness. In Sanskrit, this is illustrated to the fact that every consonant is related with the letter A. When you pronounce the consonant, like the five gutturals, you say ka ka ga ga nga. It's A, always. But for example, in English, it's E. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. No, it's most of, most of them are with E. When you say the alphabet in Romania, it's with E. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. No, all the, so not by A. A is very pure in this way that you say ka, ka. You don't say ke, ke, ge, ge, nge. You say ka, ka, ga, ga, nga. No, so it's always A is there. You always invoke the Supreme Consciousness. You put the first vowel of the alphabet to be there with everything, to enliven everything with prakasha, with the light of consciousness. So I'm telling you all these things, just trying to show you how deep this rabbit hole is, because the very structure of the language, the very structure of the consciousness, they fit with each other. And what the Hebrew Prophets, scholars tried to do, and what the Sanskrit scholars tried to do, was that they tried to create a perfect language, because they thought that through that perfect language, they would express the universal consciousness much better. It's not a coincidence that the Hebrew language allowed to people in the end to express monotheism. That monotheism in the Western cultures, it came through the Hebrew language. Why didn't it come to the Greeks? The Greeks were a much bigger nation. They occupied geographically a much bigger area. The Greek culture was huge. They had philosophers like Aristoteles and Plato and all the rest of them and so on. There was a lot. They had the Greek mysteries. Pythagoras visited and got his initiations in Egypt. So they were were connected with the Egyptian mysteries and other things. And still, it was not the Greeks or the Romans who got monotheism. They were polytheistic. And monotheism, which is the superior revelation about the fact that there is a God which is bigger than the deities, exactly as the deities are compared to the human being, and that God is Deva Deva or Mahadeva, is the God of the gods, it's God to the gods themselves. That idea came 
to people in the Hebrew mysticism. There is also a clear implication of monotheism in India, but it was revealed in very discreet ways because the Vedas and the old days, they speak about deities, but then when you speak about Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, you're asking yourself, are these guys speaking about three competing deities, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva? And then later there appeared the female ones, the consorts of Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Or are they talking about aspects of one and the same God? Although the Hindu religion was generally promoted as polytheistic, and that would mean inferior, because polytheism, it's like a pyramid without the top. You are missing exactly the tip of the pyramid. Nevertheless, when you read Indian mysticism, like in Vedanta and in so many others, you see that it's completely monotheistic, like they speak about one universal consciousness. So, uh, these were revealed on planet Earth, in the Sanskrit environment, and in the Hebrew environment. This shows how how important it is to polish a language. Sanskrit, when you, you can read these things on Wikipedia, go on Wikipedia and see what Sanskrit, uh, the article about Sanskrit there and so on. You know, I just read it uh, today just to refresh to see if they said uh, anything new, but they don't deal with these things from a spiritual and yogic way. They deal with it simply from a linguistic and anthropological uh, standpoint. The word Sanskrit with kri, which means to act, to do, basically it means polished. Like Sanskrit is the polished language, is the language which has been worked upon, you know. Like there is a primitive creation of the spontaneous linguism. And then a person like Buddha is being born in that country. And then he says, dear friends, we have to perfect our language. 46 letters are not good. We need to move it to 49 and we need to group them, and we need to take this one out, and we need to bring something more in. No, it's like a language that uh, a smith is coming and hammering it, you know, you perfect the language. Hebrew has been perfected, and Sanskrit has also been perfected. And having perfected languages, some things came archetypally, because now they were numerologically there. This corresponds to the seven times seven thing, and then it's completely, it's like suddenly you got some celestial alignment. It's like the language is aligned with the archetypes, and then the consciousness which is manifested through it can be very clear, can be a very clear consciousness. And thus, the first reason was that Sanskrit, now I'm, again, I'm always comparing to Hebrew, but it's not the subject of my dissertation, of my presentation tonight. Sanskrit had to be polished, had to be polished according to some spiritual principle. So the first time when ten rishis or gurus who are highly clairvoyant, highly open on Ajna and Sahasrara, when they dealt with this, then they dealt with it from a spiritual standpoint. That's why Sanskrit and its grammar, it's considered to be 
divinely inspired and it's considered to be a spiritual path. The, they made the, the letters, but the letters in Sanskrit, very often they look like a trident. There are at least four or five letters which contain in it things which looks like the trident of Shiva. It looks like the digit three, which we write in European languages when we write three. And it's three to the left, and it's three down when we write lam, like the syllable lam, the Bija Mantra of Muladhara. It's like a three, and there is a three which goes the other way around, like when you write H or something. You know, it's like, why this obsession with it? It shows us that even the form of the letters, it was polished. I don't know, and nobody knows, if there was Sanskrit 5,000 years ago and how they wrote it at that time. But at the time of Panini, 2,500 years ago, it was polished already. And it stayed polished till Abhinavagupta and until modern times. And people pay very little attention to this, to a polished language, because we have very little Vishuddha in the modern civilization and people are not Puritanic. You know, it's like there is even a thing that if you want to eat clean food, now it's called a mental disease. No? There is anorexia, which means you don't eat, and then there is orthorexia, which means you are obsessed with eating clean. It's in the DSM-5, in the Manual for Mental Disease in American Medicine. There is orthorexia that some people who want to eat oshava or something, they are actually crazy. No? It's a mental disease. It's qualified as a mental disease. No? And the people are just puritanic. All it is that they are pure and they want some things to stay pure. And the desire for purity, it was, you know, let's say a politically incorrect things because it has been very active last year black lives matter and all that in the vedas and in other places they didn't want white-skinned people to mix with dark-skinned people they considered it an abomination today this is called racism like you are not supposed even to touch it with the faintest idea of whatever you know because then you know but it's a lack of puritanism it's like this puritanic thing that the chosen ones should stay with the chosen ones, like the Jews were the chosen ones and they were not supposed to mix with the Gentiles. It's a totally wrong idea. Oh, you just go to a swinger club in Holland and there you take off your clothes and anything goes. That's the mantra. Anything goes. No. Like, anybody can fuck anybody, anybody can touch anybody. If once you have stepped in that place, you have given a tacit approval that anything goes. You know? Anything goes, like, what if I don't want anybody to stick a finger up my ass? You know? Like, whenever I get a finger in my ass, I'm saying, well, this doesn't go, sorry. This is my limit, you know? It doesn't, like... Do I have the right to have a certain puritanism or some principles of mine that I don't want to cross this line or I don't want to... Hey, I don't, maybe I don't want to eat meat. Maybe I don't want to eat red meat. Maybe I don't want to, you know... Like, is this a mental disease? Puritanic ways of thinking, they are considered today like a mental disease. But Sanskrit, as well as Hebrew... They come from a very puritanic environment. There is a search for purity, 
There is a search for perfection. That's why these people like Panini and Apinavagupta, Apinavagupta worshipped Bhartrihari, another great grammarian who came after Panini and wrote a great recension of Sanskrit. And they were extremely careful about the rules of Sanskrit and write it pure Sanskrit and so on. And in some parts of India, there were people who were going in very bad Sanskrit, exactly like the Latin language, decayed. And the Latin in Italy, even in the time of the Roman Empire, there was a form of Latin which was called Vulgata, which means the vulgarized Latin, you know, and that's what people were speaking on the street. And this Vulgata became the Italian language, you know, in the end, in the process of formation of the Italian people, you know. But Italian is not Latin. Yeah, it's like bastardized Latin, exactly as Hindi. Is ba- and Bengali and other dialects of India, they are bastardized Sanskrit. No? So there is a Puritanic form, and that is the one loved by the yogis, because that's why they wrote the Shastras and they channeled things in Sanskrit. They expressed things in Sanskrit, because that had a direct correspondence to the cosmic principles. And it's not only the thing of consciousness. There are more things which uh, do this. Uh, as I said, the glyphs themselves, the letters, the signs, have been conceived in such a way, changed, polished. We don't know if always the letter A was written the way it is written now, or it was written at the time of Panini or Abhinavagupta. But ever since Panini, it is written in one way and it stayed that way. And it looks like a three, and it looks like a horizontal trident of Shiva, which is put like this. Not coincidentally, it expresses something. And um, I was saying, it's not only uh, this correspondence, but it's also the fact that the letters of Sanskrit, they are the ones which implicitly they designated the 36 tattvas and the things of manifestation, and this became syllables and mantras, and the whole science of mantras is based on this. In Hebrew, this corresponds to the divine names that God is called certain divine names, and there are 999 known names of Jehovah, and there is one secret name which nobody discovered, and when somebody will discover that one, we got to the end of the world. And uh, from this uh, Jewish Hebrew perfectionism, we got also the names of the angels, like the names of the guardian angels, and the names of the archangels, and other and other such things, which generated a lot of the Kabbalistic science, and a lot of the science of magic, and occult, and, and the same thing was valid in Sanskrit. That's why you got the goddesses, you know, that there are goddesses which are called Dakinis, Hakinis, Lakinis, Shakinis, and so on. Why? Why are all of them something kinis? A letter of Sanskrit with kini. Da, kini, shakini, la, kini, ha, kini, and so on. And uh, from this, we derived the system of the ten great cosmic powers. In the ten great cosmic powers, whenever you take mantras from the ten great cosmic powers, like Krim, Shrim, Hrim, what upstream, and so on, they are all of them im. Why are all of them rhyming with each other and all the mantras of different goddesses? They have something similar. No? Because that im is not 
No, there is a mantra which is called Aum. Why not Aumim? Or something, you know, like, you know, why not Im there? Because that mantra Aum does not correspond to a Shakti. It's not a Shakti mantra. And therefore, uh, in the moment when they had to represent the Shaktis, automatically the letters of Sanskrit which correspond to that have to be different. And this letter E, the long E, A-A-E-E, the fourth of them, which is Ishana, it's the power because each one of them corresponds to something, Anuttara, Ananda, Icha, Ishana, you know. When you correspond to each one of them, start exactly with that letter. It's Sanskrit words which start exactly with that letter. For example, Anuttara starts with a simple A, but Ananda starts with a long A that corresponds to the second. Icha from Icha Shakti corresponds to the first E, to the short E, but the fourth one is E long E, and that's Ishana, Isha from Isha from Ishvara. No, the God, and and therefore the divine names, names of deities, uh, for names which are used in mantras. They are all of them related with the Sanskrit alphabet. And that's why the knowledge of the basics of Sanskrit, coupled with the knowledge of tattvas, goddesses, uh, the tantric principles, is opening the door to the infinite. Uh, it has been observed by Agihananda Bharati that at least 70% of the tantric traditions of India and Tibet, they are based on mantras. Like if you, if I give you the initiation of Hevajra and I cannot tell you what the mantra of Hevajra is, I botched it. I didn't give you any initiation. If I want to give you the initiation in Shambhala and I can't tell you what the mantra for Shambhala is, I didn't give you an initiation, you know, because the mantra is the 70% of the whole process. No, and therefore for being able to have such a science of mantras, no? In Kabbalah, it became science of divine names that you didn't use the mantra, but you used the divine name like Adonai or whatever. You know, you invoked it. You used name, names of angels like Gabriel or Mikael or whatever. No? And uh, you used it directly as a mantra, as an invocation, and they still worked, even as a name. And while in Sanskrit, there is public names and there is unofficial names, which are the mantras. The mantras are the secret name to which the deity or that class really answers, that class of spirits and so on. And that's why the science of the mantras is one of the most important parts of the tantric tradition. And Kashmiri Shaivism has this science brought to an absolutely brilliant level, not only because Abhinava Gupta was an eminent scholar, not only because Abhinava Gupta was very puritanic, not because Kashmiri Shaivism is a very high class teaching and is very elitist, very puritanic in this way, but also for a multitude of other reasons. Those of you who want to study outside of Agama's Sanskrit teaching, because again, I'm not teaching anthropological Sanskrit. I'm not teaching linguistic Sanskrit. I'm not interested. Like, you can take a course. There are online courses from 10, 20 different universities where you can study Sanskrit. Tonight, you can start the study of Sanskrit. I'm not trying to teach you that Sanskrit. 
I'm trying to teach you the mystical Sanskrit, the, yo the Sanskrit of the yogis, because this is how I got into Sanskrit. I started reading Kashmiri Shaivism, and I think I was in the third or fourth year of my university studies, and then suddenly I realized if I would know a bit of Sanskrit, this would go much further. I could understand much more what they are talking about. And then I took an extra course. I was studying at that time a technical university. I was studying electric, electronic engineering. Had nothing to do with humanistic disciplines in the university, you know. So I had to go to another university, to another institute, you know, and ask for a special uh, permission from the authorities of the, so that I could join a Sanskrit course for one semester, you know. And um, um, in this way, I, I needed to look a little bit into the Sanskrit to understand exactly what these people were talking about and to understand why they were doing what they were doing. But believe me, this rabbit hole is very, very deep. No, like for example, I'll, I'll give you a, a glimpse today of the kind of connections which can be made. In the vowels, there are 16 vowels in Sanskrit, and the first six vowels are just duplicating short with long, short with long, short with long, a, a, e, e, u, u. And then suddenly it jumps to four very bizarre vowels, which you would not call vowels, which are generally called in English translation the steriles, sterile vowels, sterile, which means like woman who cannot have children. You know, so it's like sterile, barren vowels. And those sterile vowels are very strange because they sound like half consonants, because they contain a lot of R in it. And it's a special R, it's a rolling R, it's the retroflex, the cerebral R, which means where you put the tongue up to touch the vault of the palate, and that's R, and then you put it with E, you know, and they are RI, RI, and then suddenly you add an L to it, and it's a RI, RI, you know, it's RI, 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 RI. Like, are these vowels? Yeah, for example, when you write the name of Krishna, it's KRI, it's that RI, it's K, R, and then there comes SH, there's not E pictured in the name of Krishna, except in English. In Sanskrit, it's K-R, which means RI, and that SHU, also a SHU with the tongue up, and N, also with the tongue up, and then A. Ah. So the name of Krishna originally is Krishna. 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 No, that's how you pronounce it. Three letters have the tongue up. Krishna. 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 No? And... Uh, of course, it means in Sanskrit, it means the black one. Krishna actually means black. It's the one who is black for whatever reasons are there. Shiva can be black or blue or something. So back to our story. It's, it's one of the names. No, he can be called Gopala, Govinda. You know, it has, Krishna has many uh, worshipful names. So uh, what are these bizarre sterile vowels, which don't even sound like vowels. And then the next vowels are long, they are diphthongs almost, but some of them are considered vowels in the Western languages, like A, A, E, O, A, U, you know. And then you're thinking, why sterile vowels? And then you can make a connection with something which is completely in the other end of the spectrum, with the law of seven from Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff says that in any system, if you divide it in seven like the musical scale, then there is always a hiatus at three times three-sevenths of the interval. Like do, re, mi, hiatus, 
fa, sol, la, si, and then hiatus again. Well, if you take 16 and try to find out what is three-seventh of the 16, it's exactly the vowel number 7, and there, which simply means there are six vowels which go a, a, e, e, u, u, and then suddenly there is a hiatus. It's the semitone from music, and there there is a void, and those vowels represent the void. And there is a cosmic power which represents the hiatus, the stopping of everything. And her mantra contains the vowel LRI. It's with LRI in it. You know, suddenly that, and that's, that Shakti contains a, um, a hiatus, a sterile vowel, you know. So like in the moment when you start understanding these things and seeing the correspondences, it becomes just amazing. No, because then you can unfurl and see all the connections which exist there. That's the real Sanskrit. In India, there was the tantric opinion which Abhinavagupta sustained. And Abhinavagupta is a good authority to quote on things of Tantra because his Tantra Loka is the the most definitive text, like, I'm not saying that something better might not be written ever, but until now, it's the, defin the most definitive definition of what the tantric tradition contains in it. He did not deal with some of the witchcraft, shamanic, uh, low-level tantra, however, but otherwise, in all the clean parts of tantra, he analyzed it, and according to his idea, there are five methods of reaching God. One of them is jnana, which is the Vedantic method, the Buddhist primitive method, not the Tibetan Buddhist method, the Buddhist original, the Hinayana, the Buddhist, the Thai Buddhism, the Sri Lanka Buddhism, uh, the Southern Buddhist way, you know, with Vipassana and all that, that is jnana, like the Vedantins did, and so much the Rishis in India and everybody did this dry jnana which means, and I'm not going to insist because I make this lecture too long. The second is uh, yoga. Yoga is conceived specially to create the union between the individual and the universal consciousness. Either it contains hatha yoga or it doesn't contain hatha yoga. Either it is karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, kundalini yoga, whatever it is, it does, it's a method it's authentified even by Apinavagupta like the second method for reaching the God consciousness. The third method for reaching the God consciousness is music. And this is so lost, it's a little bit present in the music of the Rudravina and in the music of the Drupad, which is used today in India. In my life, I have seen only probably three books which allude to this in a, in a way which allows you to see uh, the most modern of them, which really you should start from if you are interested, if any one of you is a musician and obsessed with music and so on, you have to read that one. It's called The Way Music. Thomas Marcotti, The Way Music, in which he unravels, and in the 1960s, he was still capable to find some of the great musicians who told him what was actually hidden behind this. The ragas... They are 64 in number, 
So it's a system of ragas, like the tantras, like the, like a diamond, and each one of them illustrates a certain aspect of the universe. And the ragas, you cannot change an iota from it. Like the ragas are completely immovable because the melodic line of the raga has been decided by clairaudient and clairvoyant rishis in the past. And the ragas have each one of them a resonance. Like there is Raga Bhairava, there is Raga Malkut, there is Raga... Each one of them corresponds to something. Each one of the Ragas has to be played at a different time of the day. Like the Raga for Krishna, this Vishna, Malkut Raga has to be played always at sunset. You don't play it when you want. You want to be played at a certain hour of the day. Raga Bhairava is usually played at midnight or late in the night because it's about Bhairava, who is the night of Shiva. And the Ragas have to be played only on Rudavina. You don't play ragas on sitar or other bizarre things. You don't play ragas on guitars or other things. It has to be Rudravina because the Rudravina has seven strings and only the Rudravina can express archetypally those things. And uh, a raga should be played for somewhere between three to four hours, which comes exactly close to the yogic standard that you should do an asana for three hours and 48 minutes. And it's a tattvic cycle involved there. And therefore, a raga, when you hear today ragas, they cannot record ragas of three hours. So you always get a raga, which is 30 minutes. I think the longest which I have on one is 50 minutes or 60 minutes. Those are Kali Yuga ragas. You know, they are just ragas for idiots. A real raga lasts more than three hours and it starts very slowly, and it goes on and on. And the exam in the time of Tirumular, the Tamil Shaiva, Shaiva Siddhanta saints in India, the exam, I, I do say that in the music lecture, if you ever heard about it in the fifth day of the Agama first level courses, the exam, Thomas Markoti has revealed it from musicians from India, that in the 14th century, or whenever Tirumular lived, and he was also a musician, if I remember, or he had somebody who was a musician, one other saint connected to him. The exam for becoming a proclaimed musician in Rudravina was that you had to play the raga of fire in front of a candle, and the candle should burst in fire without you touching it. If you could light a candle by playing the fire music to it, then you knew what music was. And these ragas were played for problems. Like, for example, I have a child who is possessed by the demons. And then the Rudravina musician comes and he plays for three hours and a half and my child is healed by Shiva, by music. So music was a way of going into the Shiva consciousness and the ragas were very special and this music was very special. But then as the Islamic invasion came to India these musicians had to become court musicians for the Islamic rulers for six centuries, and they lost much of it, and music became performance. So the, fifth, the third way was music. That's why it's not a coincidence that Abhinavagupta was playing the Rudravina, is described as playing the Rudravina, and as being a musician. He was dabbling into it. We don't know if he was the greatest Rudravina player ever, or we don't know if he could light candles with his Rudravina. But we know that he was, he knew about these things, and probably he was very good. 
The fourth way of reaching God is dance. And that dance, only Gurdjieff in the 20th century brought the Sufi dances, but not the dervish dance of Rumi, because that's exoteric. Everybody can see that. They are the inner dances of Central Asia, which he learned in monasteries in Afghanistan and places like that, in, uh, in, on the way to Shambhala, between Afghanistan and Shambhala. And uh, he brought those movements and those dances, and they brought so much karma on him that he had a car accident and broke his skull and almost died, and then he stopped. Today, what you see as Gurdjieff movements or Gurdjieff dances, they are done only by pupils who did not obey to his request to stop. Like after he stopped, some people said, yeah, but it was so amazing. It was so, and then after he died, they reconstituted it. And there is still a karmic blockage. There is this movie called Meetings with Remarkable Men, which is made by, uh, what's his name? Peter Brooks or Brooks, what was his other name? Peter Brooks or something. I don't remember. The guy who made the Mahabharata movie also. And this, uh, I don't know why I forgot his first name. And this Brooks, this guy, he made meetings with remarkable men with an arm, with an actor from Serbia, with a Serbian actor, like an unknown actor. You know, it was done in a very interesting way, that movie, you know. And as soon as it appeared, it got a legal problem and you could not obtain it for the next 20 years. Between 1970 and 1990-something, that movie was in a court case for 20 years. And by synchronicity, you couldn't buy it and you could not obtain it. And today, more than 40 years passed since they made it, and nobody cares about it. Because Gurdjieff is not, you know, it was hot in the 19, late 70s. They made it in 1978, and everybody said, oh, let's see. And there they rebuild the movements and dances of Gurdjieff without explaining them. But at least you could see a bit of what was happening in the Gurdjieff sessions, you know. And then people could not see that movie, because in those days, uh, only in the late 80s, we started having VHS, video cassettes, you know, so people could not record. You're bound to have it on celluloid, like a celluloid movie, no? And people could not find it because it was locked in a court case, which lasted until 1997 or something like this, you know? And then the kind of the interest had faded already. So in a mysterious way, people did not get to see the movements of Gurdjieff and so on. And you know who brought the Temple Indian dance to Europe? A French woman, lioness, which was nicknamed Matahari. And guess what happened? She was condemned to death for espionage and executed. And until today, there are doubts that she was actually a spy. No? And many people say she brought temple dance. People were going in weird states of mind, ecstatic states of mind. She was not the best temple dancer ever by far, but in Europe it made a difference. You know, and because she brought it and showed it to Europeans, then she got the karma and she got shot, per perhaps accidentally, perhaps while being innocent. So dance means something else than what we know today. You know, at the best dancers in the glorious times of ballet, like uh, Anna Pavlova and the uh, other, you know, this guy who was semi-levitating, whoever his name was, <clears throat> ballet, big ballet, Russian ballet uh, dancers, 
at the most they managed to push their dance to Vishuddha chakra, no, like uh, the Swan Lake type of thing. Ballet is aesthetical maximum to Vishuddha chakra. I have not seen any ballet which developed anything on Sahas or Sahasrara. There is a little bit in the ballet on the Prokofiev music, Romeo and Juliet. There is a paragraph of music for ballet which works a little bit on Ajna and a little bit on Ajna Sahasrara. It's a very short paragraph. The one which sounds like dun 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 that one is you know but otherwise the Western dance never raised and for this Vishuddha you should see it there is a very rare Russian movie maybe our Russian students will get it with subtitles I mean because otherwise I can get it without subtitles I think I even have it without subtitles. It's called Anna Pavlova, which was the most famous female Russian ballet dancer in before the Second World War and so on. And you can see how much she paid for showing Vishuddha. Just for showing Vishuddha in ballet with her body, she was the most one of the most beautiful and expressive dancers that there's been in the Western dance. And then this guy was Nureyev or whatever, this male dancer, you know. And... Um, even they, you know, it was difficult, it was like almost beyond the wall of silence to show that, to show that. Today, how many people go to ballet to see the Swan Lake? You know, modern people, they have the modern ballet company of New York. And in the modern ballet company of New York, believe me, nobody is expressing Vishuddha Chakra. You see just contorted people who look like question marks. Oh, uh, uh, you know, it's just Vadistana drama expressed through the body. It's not Vishuddha anymore. There is nothing perfect, ideal or anything. Well, the temple dance of India was one step further than all these things. And only the Sufi dance of the dervishes and only the Gurdjieff movements of the Gurdjieff dances they are the only ones which are in family with the temple dance. The correct temple dance of India was expressing gods and goddesses. You can dance Shiva, you can dance Krishna, you can dance Ganesha, you can dance Kali, you can dance other Vidyas. You know? And the women who did this they were usually devadasis, which means they were not married, they didn't have kids, and if they had kids, they gave them away. Like they were very detached from family and society and this kind of rules. And uh, they were trying to live a non-attached life in, in uh, this way. And these women, exactly as it takes 15 years to learn the Rudravina for pretentious gurus, it apparently took 15 years to learn Indian dance, temple dance, really, at that level. These women, to be able to dance Bhuvaneshwari, they were fasting, they were meditating with the mantras of Bhuvaneshwari, they were doing pujas, and when they came on the stage of the temple to dance, 
they had to become one with the goddess, which means it's like they took a substance, but they didn't take substances. They were like drunk because they had to be possessed. So they were hyperventilating, they were doing a certain type of breathing, they were using mantras and visualizations and all sorts of things. And for 30 minutes, they were possessed by the goddess. That's why the temple dance was also a magic. Like when they when people saw the temple dance, they were getting healed, they were getting exorcised, they were blessing their crops, they were blessing the year to come, like for the Thai New Year, you know, so that people in Thailand are making pujas to these spirit houses and so on. Like you have to do something to bless the New Year. So this is the dance, and dance when it is done like this, it can make one go into a divine form of consciousness. And that's very kinesthetic. It's for people who are very kinesthetic that by dancing, yeah. I remember what I was telling you about a Canadian student who said, I go to the disco. She was a triple earth sign, astrologically very muladharistic, you know. And she said, I go in a disco, I dance strong rock music for 30 minutes. And then my Muladhara and Zvadistana are so activated and my Kundalini is aroused. And I feel like I want to have sex like an animal, absurdly, unconditionally, like I would fuck anything and anybody which goes in front of my face. Because after I have danced 30 minutes like that, I'm like possessed by something. I'm not myself anymore. I have no shame, no decency, no nothing. I'm gone completely. Well, the same thing was trying to be obtained in Indian temple dance, but in a spiritual direction, not in a disco uh, sex direction, but in the direction of being possessed by the gods. So this is a very puritanic dance in which you don't do what you want. There are mudras. You always have to use exactly the gestures because they are all putting you in resonance with that. And last but not least for tonight's uh, expression, the fifth method of reaching God. So it was jnana, like abstract knowledge, meditative knowledge, yoga with all its branches, music, rudravina, and that kind of thing, the way music, um, dance, and the fifth was grammar. And grammar meant exactly the meditation on the phonemes, on all these connections, on all these correspondences. It didn't mean grammar of the grammarly type. That is included somewhere, like if you want to translate Sanskrit texts and so on, of course you need to know grammar. That you can learn in school. The, what they meant by grammar was exactly this understanding of the correspondences to understand why re, 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 they are called the sterile vowels and how they can be used and, you know, where they should be inserted and where they should not be used and what energy they can bring forth and all the rest. I have studied quite a bit. I've been interested in the phonemics of Sanskrit naturally because of all the science of mantras that we have in yoga and tantra and because of the Kashmiri Shaivism in particular. And uh, I have seen so many things that if I would start uh, unfolding a few of them, it would be beyond the scope of this lecture. In the workshop, I will mention quite a few 
of them. You know, like, for example, why do the Hebrew language, the Israeli modern language, and the Dutch language, why do they have this coughing consonant? <laughs> Things which come guttural from the bottom of the throat. And why, for example, in other languages you don't find them? Or why in some languages you have very strong R? Like in Germany, if you want to say the word Kranz, then it's Kranz. But you'd never say that word in English or in French. No, in French you roll it. You know, ra 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 ra. It's not r. It's not kranz. No, it's trois, trois, un deux trois. It's not trois. You know, if you say trois, you don't speak French. You know, the French can hear that it's trois. You know, and and in English it's three. It's a little bit, but not too much. You know, it's like you know, heart, heart, not heart. Heart. It's a softened R, you know, and it corresponds to Manipura. So what does that say about the British Manipura, the French Manipura, the German Manipura? No? And so on. So in this way, you can think, because I, because the mantra Ram is the Bija mantra of Manipura, no? And uh, that R is a Germanic R. It's a stronger, it's a R. It's not rolled like in French, and it's not softened like in English. It's a powerful R. Ram, 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 Ram. No? It's, uh, and therefore, there is a lot hiding here, that in some languages, some letters are very soft, and some letters are very strong, and they insist, and thus, there is a phonematic psychology, that the psychology of different countries depends very much on the language which they speak, and in the moment when you speak, you know, some people say, but man, I'm not speaking Romanian anymore, I'm even thinking in English. That in, then it means that you are not Romanian anymore. Your psychology is not Romanian, your psychology has become English, because you think in English, and therefore, it's another phonemic philo- uh, resonance with that. So, it's about languages, resonance, chakras, and a lot of other things. And um, it's very much, again, about mantras and phonemes of Sanskrit. Unfortunately, not all these things can be explained in uh, 18 hours of teaching, in six days, three hours per day. Uh, some of them simply cannot because of the volume, the bulk of the things to be explained, and some of them should not be explained. Like, I'm not willing to start throwing pearls in a six-day workshop with some some of you, some of the people being uh, total beginners, simply because some of these things have been held like very big secrets in the tantric tradition. And those of you who remember, you will remember that the use of the phonemes, it's one of the components of Shivopaya. So not only that it's a secret, but it's a secret in the meaning that uh, it's impossible. You have to do these things by acting on Shivopaya. And if you don't reach Shivopaya in your practice, then just trying to speculate with Sanskrit for names and with uh, Matrika and Malini and all sorts of concatenations like this, it's not serving any purpose. It just generates a scholarly boredom and no results. And then, let's not forget that in Shaktopaya, you have heard that one of the forms of Shaktopaya is exactly this secret science of mantras, the use of mantras on the superior level. 
That's why much of this phonemic knowledge in Sanskrit, you will uh, enjoy it with me when you are going to do advanced teachings or advanced retreats. Uh, it's, it's, again, Sanskrit for yogis is an intro in Sanskrit, exactly as Kashmir Shaivism was the intro to Kashmir Shaivism. It's not the full uh, of it. That simply says, even I am not able to reach some depths of this rabbit hole in six days in an introduction to Sanskrit. But my purpose is definitely to show you the directions in which this is going. That means which are the directions in which you can study these things. Um, there is not much you can study in terms of Kashmiri Shaivism into this, but one of the greatest Sanskritologists who dabbled in Tantra, and I'm talking about Sir John Woodruff, later called Arthur Avalon, he wrote a couple of books, and one of them, which is a little bit like copied from chapters from the other one, because the other one was very thick and big, uh, introduction to Tantra Shastra, in one of them he focused mostly on this story with Sanskrit, but not from Kashmiri Shaivism, from the Shakta traditions, from the Tantric texts of the Shakta tradition, and he called that book The Garland of Letters. So if any one of you wants to read a book which is taking you to this, what is known, for example, outside of Kashmiri Shaivism, and believe me, there is much, much there, it's a difficult book, then you study the Garland of Letters, which is an available book, a widely available book, considered very scholarly and very technical, and there you are going to see what they talk about these things. Unfortunately, many of these people, they did not have the understanding of the things from Kashmiri Shaivism, so they were not being able to bridge those two things, plus the classical yoga with the chakras and a lot of other things. And that's why here... In these courses in Agama, both in the intro to Sanskrit and in the later phonemic emanation things, then uh, we are doing, we are going much deeper. Again, it was my own need at some point in my studies of yoga and tantra that I wanted to know a bit more about Sanskrit, at least at an introductory level. I today, if you give me a text in Sanskrit, I cannot necessarily say that I can translate it because I am not a translator from Sanskrit. You know, uh, Das Gupta, one of the great Sanskritologists from the beginning of the 20th century, was educating Professor Mircea Eliade, the guy with the history of religions and so on, the man who wrote the first PhD thesis on yoga in France, uh, was educating him in Sanskrit. And he told him very clearly, if you don't do two hours of Sanskrit per day, you'll never learn it to the point of being able to really read it, speak it. Like You need to practice it every day, two hours minimum, to be to allot two hours of your day to the Sanskrit thing. That's why I will not take you and I cannot take you to that level because I myself am not at that level. Uh, I'm not a Sanskritologist in the full meaning of it, but I know the Sanskrit for yogis what yogis need to know for their Sanskrit, and that's what I'm trying to show to everyone in this workshop on Sanskrit. It, therefore, it's not going to be too difficult, too mad, to you know, it's going to just show you the correspondences, and these correspondences are very, 
very important. With this, I will not say more because now we don't have Q&A, but you understand that Sanskrit is related to consciousness, to the spirit of the Indian tradition, to purity, to the download of the spiritual archetypes, and it is related with mantras, and it is related with tattvas, and with all the principles which we work with in yoga practically, and that's why Sanskrit is of a certain importance in the world of yoga, especially where the mantras are so important for the study of everything. In this way, those of you who will be interested, I will see you on Monday to the workshop, and there we'll explore a little bit these bricks of Sanskrit with yoga. With this, let us finish for tonight. Thank you all for joining. Sorry that it was delayed, but we are sharing a yoga hall here with other courses in Agama, and today we started half an hour late. Let's finish for now. Thank you all.